Today we have two Bible verses, so the first one being from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 1 to 9, and the second from Ephesians 6, 1 to 9. Deuteronomy. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit in home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your heads and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And Ephesians 6, 1 to 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Thanks for that, Josh, and morning, everyone. Over the last three months or so, I've received a lot of parenting advice, which I'm very thankful for. It's, that's not a backhanded compliment at all. Please, please keep it coming. Alicia and I need all the help that we can get. Uh, we're very thankful to have a loving church family with us on this journey. And appropriately enough, here we are looking at a passage that, among other things, contains some very sound advice for parents. And to begin with, I want to take you back to my year seven maths class 19 years ago. We had a new teacher. We'd just done our first test for the year. The teacher had marked the tests, and I think all of our high school students are probably familiar with that feeling of dread of rocking up for that first lesson after a test. Um, instead of just quietly handing back the tests to each student, though, the teacher did something that I've never forgotten. It's stuck in my mind ever since. So in order of highest score to lowest score, he read out the name of each student, the mark that we got, and he handed our tests back to us one by one. Uh, the first few got pretty good grades, and, and we clapped as the, the scores got read out. Uh, but then he got down to about 70%, and he, and he said, all right, stop clapping. And so the, the last few students who didn't do so well got their results publicly read out and handed back to them in complete silence as everyone looked on. Now, I was lucky, I got over 70%, so I was, I was fine, but what he did just felt wrong to me, and it's, and it's stuck with me for two decades. 
ever since. I didn't quite have the insight to understand what was going on there, but looking back on it now, I can see that he was using his position of power to shame people under his power. Maybe not a lot unlike what Rachel did to Joel just before, but that's, we'll, 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 we'll let that go. Um, power can cause issues in both directions, can't it? it I'm sorry. <laughs> now, now you know how Joel felt. I've got you, got you back, Joel. Power can cause issues in both directions, can't it? It can be abused by those who have it, and it can be resented and opposed by those who are under it. And both of those can be relationally damaging, can't they? Ephesians chapter 6 is about how we navigate power in our relationships for the purpose of unity. We've seen in chapters 1 to 3, the first half of Ephesians, about who we are in Christ, the blessings that we have in the spiritual realms in Jesus, the unity that we have together as his body. And then from chapter 4 onwards, we see what it looks like for us to live out this identity. And Paul, who writes the letter, instructs the people in the church in chapter 5, verse 21, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he then applies this to three relationships that would have been commonplace in the church at that time, or in households at that time. Three relationships where one person had more power than the other. Uh, So wives and husbands, which we looked at last week, children and parents, slaves and masters. And the big picture here is that we are to serve, honour and submit to Jesus Christ in our relationships, whether that's by submitting respectfully to another or by using our power for the good of another. So firstly, children and parents. Paul's instruction for children is to obey your parents in the Lord. But before we unpack that, let me draw your attention to something so obvious that you probably skimmed right past it without even thinking about it. Paul is instructing children. He considers children, teenagers, anyone who's still dependent on family as genuine members of the church. People who we should expect to be convicted and to be changed by God's word and by God's spirit. And if that's our attitude as well, then it impacts the way that we do church. This is obviously a little bit different for 11 a.m. I did this sort of equally with 9 a.m. in mind, where we had about 30 kids along this morning, Um, but it's still still applicable for 11 11 a.m. as well. I'll I'll give a shameful confession alert here. When I was a bit younger, when I was sort of in my early 20s, I used to really dislike kids' talks in church, couldn't stand kids' talks, because they seemed so childish. And I came to realise that's the whole point, the the, the clue is in the word kids at the start of it. They not only teach our kids from the Bible, and also teach the grown-ups as well, I might point out, they send the message to kids that church is for them as well. Because how many people in their 20s, 30s, 40s do you know who have checked out of churches as kids or teenagers because they just didn't feel like it was for them? See, real church doesn't begin when kids go out for their programs or, or any of that sort of thing. 
what goes on at 9am down in the ministry center when the kids are in their programs down there engaging with God's word is just as important as what happens at 9 and 11am up here when the sermon is on for the adults. And it's the same with our youth in the teenage years as well. You know, as, as Josh said, how good was it hearing from David this morning, hearing David share about how God has been at work in his life? And how good was it having Josh up here doing the Bible reading and Eva up here singing and Tim on piano as well? We don't run basement, our youth group, on Friday nights just, just for the sake of it, just, just for the sake of having a youth group. We do it because we trust God to be doing amazing things in the hearts and the lives of our young people. I was going to make some comment about our youth being the future leaders of our church, but I think that might be selling them a bit short because plenty of them are leading well right now. A church that celebrates young people, that intentionally grows young people in the gospel message and gives them every chance to be involved in ministry, that's a healthy church. Uh, so to those who are involved in leading in our kids' ministry programs and in our youth group, I want to give you a big thank you because that is such a valuable way uh, that you can serve and bless our church family by investing in younger people. We've got some really exciting plans for our children's ministries that we're putting in place for next year. We can't wait to, to share those over the coming weeks. Obey your parents in the Lord, Paul says to children. And he quotes from the fifth commandment here, honor your father and your mother. And he reminds the church of the promise that's attached to that command, that it may go well for you and that you may enjoy long life. So does obeying our parents guarantee us long life and prosperity? If I do everything my mum and dad says, am I going to live to be 100 and have lots of money in the bank account the whole time? Well, no, not not strictly in the, in the literal sense. But for, for kids here, for high schoolers here, your parents have the God-given responsibility of shaping you into grown men and women. They're not going to always get it right. They're going to make mistakes along the way. But obey them. Obey them in the Lord. You'll benefit from it. Because your parents will be, out, be better able to care for you, to protect you, to equip you, to provide for you, and to set a godly example for you if you honor Jesus and bless them by obeying them. Even if your parents aren't followers of Jesus, we're still to honor them as best we can without dishonoring or disobeying Jesus. And even for adults who have left home and don't depend on parents anymore, the command to honour them still remains. Parents, don't get off the hook though. Paul's got instructions for you as well. Raise your children in the Lord. Don't exasperate them. Don't provoke them to anger. He addresses fathers particularly, having just, having just acknowledged husbands as the head of the wife and therefore fathers as head of the family. But mothers, you should understand these instructions as being for you as well, particularly in households where there isn't a father available or willing to follow them. So how might a father or a mother exasperate a child? Well, perhaps by being harsh, cruel, overly critical, perhaps by humiliating or ridiculing a child, depriving a child of quality time, affection, or 
any other form of love, by being overbearing and setting excessive boundaries, treating a a 16-year-old like a six-year-old, or maybe on the flip side, by not setting enough boundaries. I realize this is really easy to say for someone who doesn't have kids, so feel free to download the recording of this sermon online and play it back to me in 10 years' time and (laughs) see how I'm stacking against it. But it's important, particularly for fathers, I think. Because if you're here this morning as someone who trusts in Jesus and, and trusts in God as father, then I'd be very surprised if your perception of your father in heaven has not been shaped by your relationship with your father on earth, for better or for worse. Don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Give them a gospel-driven, grace-centered upbringing, focusing not on behavior management so much as heart transformation through God's word and God's spirit setting clear and reasonable boundaries that are in line with what the Bible teaches, never withholding love, even when punishment and discipline is needed. Now, this is where I'd love to give you Mark's 10 silver bullet tips for successful Christian parenting. Obviously, I'm not in a position to do that just yet, so I'll I'll keep it as simple as I can. Parents, what messages are you sending your kids about what you want them to value, and who you want them to be. Are you praying with them? Are you reading the Bible with them? Are you setting a godly example for them to follow? Do you model humility to them? Do you, do you say sorry when you get things wrong? And do you model a commitment to Sunday church as well? Because you send a message to your kids every time you come to church. You send a message to your kids every time you involve yourself in the life and the ministry of the church, and when you reflect together as a family about what you heard and learnt at church. And that message that you're sending is this, church is important. On the flip side, you send a message to your children when there are things that regularly, obviously apart from being sick, things that regularly get in the way of being at church as well. There was a, uh, a teenage girl at a previous church that Alicia and I were at who gave a public declaration of faith as a, as a teenager. Now, not completely dissimilar to what David did just before, but a bit more of a, a formal sort of a thing. And her parents hosted a celebration party for her afterwards, and they made it clear that this was more important to them than her 18th birthday, her 21st birthday, even her wedding day. This was more important. Her dad made the comment, if she spends her whole life collecting garbage for a living, trusting in Jesus, I'm happy with that. Now, it's not wrong to want a more fulfilling career for your child. I'm sure, I'm sure deep down he did. But what a valuable message to give to that child, that your walk with God is what we care about most as parents. Now, this is going to be a sensitive passage For some people, there'll be parents whose children aren't walking with Jesus. There'll be people who have a a strained relationship with either children or parents. Perhaps this triggers grief or guilt for, for where you're at. What we need to remember is these instructions are grounded in grace. 
Paul is writing to people who have spiritually been brought from death to life through Jesus. That's the gospel message. That is the heart of Christianity. We can know God not because we're good people, because really we aren't. We can know God and come to God because Jesus has died for our sins and he's been raised back to life. And so if we've trusted in Jesus, then the punishment for our sins, the anger that God has at our sin, is not placed on us. It's placed on Jesus. We're saved by God's undeserved grace, his amazing grace that we sang about just earlier through faith in Jesus. And we have the certain promise of sharing forever in his new life. So everything Paul says in Ephesians is grounded in this message of grace. He's not shaming us for the things that we've got wrong, for the ways that we've lived in darkness. He's calling us to live in the light. So if this passage is a difficult one for you for for whatever reason, just know that God is the perfect father and Jesus is the perfect son who none of us could ever be. God's grace trumps our weakness and failure any day of the week. So children, obey your parents. Parents, raise your children in the Lord. And now we come to slaves and masters. And immediately there are two questions that that we ask here. Firstly, is the Bible pro-slavery? Paul doesn't seem to be opposing it at all here. And secondly, how do we we apply these instructions in a very different world that we live in today? So firstly, is the Bible pro-slavery? Let's first just be clear on what Paul is talking about here. Slavery in the Roman Empire was, by and large, quite different to more modern-day slavery that we would associate the word with, where people are forcibly removed from their land and, and sold into slavery. That sort of thing did happen back then to to some degree, and and Paul is clear in another letter that he wrote, 1 Timothy, that slave trading was contrary to the teaching of the gospel. For the most part, though, slavery was more humane than that. It was certainly common. There are estimates that probably a third of the population of the Roman Empire at that time were slaves, and in fact, some estimates are a lot higher than that, up to half to two-thirds people often willingly sold themselves into slavery as a form of employment or to be able to gain Roman citizenship. And slaves could often own property, they could be trusted with significant responsibilities, sometimes they even had slaves of their own. Slavery is addressed several times in the New Testament and it's never explicitly endorsed as a good thing, but it's recognised as a reality at that time a system that has great potential for abuse and for cruelty, but one that could be revolutionised by the gospel message. See, to, to free a slave back then would just be to subject them either to poverty or possibly to another master who was, who was even crueler. But a godly master could provide great blessing and great security for his slaves. And a Christian slave could be an effective witness to the gospel message. The church was perhaps the only context where slaves and masters were treated as equals. Because in Christ, they are equal. Second question, what's the modern day application? Where does this land for us right now? 
Well, the common application used for this is the employee-employer relationship in the workplace, which I think is valid, provided that we recognise that it's not like-for-like. Like. It's not like-for-like. Like. It might not always feel like it, but employees today have far more security, power, protection and voice than slaves would have back then. And so the principle, both then and now, is that we are to serve, honour, and submit to Jesus in our relationships, whether that's by submitting respectfully to someone in authority above us, or by using our power for the good of those below us. And the principle applies not just to the workplace, but anywhere that one person is in power over another person, particularly where both of those people are Christian, because that's the context in Ephesians. Paul is talking about Christian relationships in the church. So if we go to another book that Paul wrote, 1 Timothy, which I mentioned earlier, in chapter 6, Paul writes that slaves are to obey their masters, whether those masters are Christian or not. The reason? So that God's name isn't slandered. And then we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, where we read that slaves are to submit even to harsh and cruel masters. Why? So that those who see their behaviour, the behaviour of the slaves, might come to know God. And so the Bible is clear that submitting to those who are in power above us has evangelistic value, it has missional value, because it puts Christianity in a positive light. But in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is showing, first and foremost, the implications of the gospel message for Christian relationships. And in a society where up to half of people were slaves and a good portion of the other people would have been masters, it's not hard to see that disunity between slaves and masters would have very much compromised the unity of the church. And as we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians, the unity of the church is absolutely central. So, what's the instruction for those who are under the power and authority of another, whether that's in the workplace or, or some other context? The instruction is to obey them as you would obey the Lord. And notice that this is a heart attitude. It's not just about outward appearances. It's not just about working hard when the boss is looking so that we look good. It comes from a deeper desire, a desire to serve God, to do his will, to obey Christ, knowing that the Lord rewards the good that he's done. At the last church that Alicia and I were at, there was a, a girl who had a part-time job in a bakery, and the owner of that bakery had video cameras set up in the shop, which isn't entirely unusual, but what is unusual is that when the manager wasn't working, she would just go home and she would just watch the videos, the, the footage, as other people were working. And if she saw that someone had gone one minute over their lunch break or if someone was serving a customer too slowly, she would call up the store to, to complain just so, just so that they knew she was watching the whole time. Um, you can judge for yourself whether that's a, <laughs> a good hobby to have. I could probably think of better things to do when you're not working. Um, but I'm sure fear can be an effective motivator at times. However, how much more to know that Jesus laid down his life for us? 
He served us in the ultimate way. He met a need that we would never have been able to meet on our own, making us right with God. And that we love him and we serve him in return as we obediently serve the people who he's placed in authority over us. That's wholehearted gospel obedience. And for those of us who have spent time working at home during COVID, um, perhaps that's been a bit of a heart test for whether you obey your earthly master only when their eyes on you. So that is those under the power, under power and authority. To those of us who are in power, the instruction here is to treat the people under you as you would the Lord. Don't threaten them. See, 2,000 years ago, a master could pose pretty serious threats against slaves. He had the power of life and death over his slaves. And you might not quite have that much power, but you might be in a similar position to be able to threaten people who you're in authority over. Don't. Don't abuse your power in that way. Why? Because Jesus is your Lord as well as theirs. The word for master here is the same as the word for Lord that we use for Jesus. So your mastership, your power over this person is temporary. But Jesus' lordship is not. That's eternal. The human power that you hold has been given to you by Jesus to serve him. It doesn't earn you any favoritism with him. And we all know what it's like don't we, to to see someone abuse power, to misuse power, whether that's on a global scale that we see on the news or perhaps in smaller, more personal ways, closer to home. We might think of bullies in the workplace or the schoolyard who suck up to the people above them on the, the social ladder but torment those who are below them. We had a, a boys and girls night at basement on last Friday where we had um, separate topical nights. And one of the things I said to the boys where we were talking about what it means to be a Christian man is to, to think about how, how you use your power right now. If you, if you use your power that you have in the schoolyard or whatever right now to bully the people that are below you, what makes you think that you're not going to use that power to hurt people below you in more serious and damaging ways later on in life. Most of us, either now or at some point in life, we're going to experience both sides of this. We're going to experience being under the power of another, and we're going to experience being in a position of power. And so if God has placed you in power over someone else or multiple people, are you committed to honouring Jesus in how you use that power. And if God has placed someone in power over you, are you committed to honouring Jesus in your humble position? See, if you're a believer in Jesus, your identity is not in the power that you have. It's not in the power that you don't have. It's in Christ. The redemption of sins, the adoption to sonship and the glorious inheritance that you have in him alone. May our relationships glorify him always. Let me pray. Father, thank you that Jesus gave up so much to save us. We thank you that he has defined what it means to be in power and what it means to be under power. We pray for those of us who are in positions 
of power over others, whether that's husbands over wives, whether that's parents over children, employers over employees, or, or in whatever way. Please give us selflessness and help us to submit to Jesus in how we use that power and help us to bless others with it. For those of us who are under power, wives under husbands, children under parents, workers under bosses, or in whatever other way that might play out, help us to honour Jesus in how we respond to that power. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his praise and glory. Amen.